Genesis 15, 1 through 21. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun has set and darkness had fallen, a smoke and brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, Euphrates the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this past week, I led a marriage course, a marriage prep course for a couple that's approaching their wedding. No prizes to you if you know who that couple might be. Uh, one of their members is present here, but I won't call him out. These sessions are always good fun, though. Uh, they're good fun because you're looking forward to a good thing, to a, a celebratory thing. The couple's always very excited. We get to open up the Bible together and, and see what God's Word has to say about the institution of, of marriage and the relationship, and um, discuss any practical difference that should make to the way that they live their married lives. And this week, one of the main points of our session 
was to discuss what it means that marriage is a covenant and not simply a contract. A, a contract is a convenient agreement entered into freely by two parties who commit to furthering their personal interests by relating to each other in a specific way for a, a specified period of time. I put my agreed upon money on the table, my agreed upon goods and services on the table, and I expect that I will get the agreed upon product or, or package in return. Contracts are necessary, we all know how they work, we all sign them all the time, but they're also cautious and calculating and therefore inherently unsafe because if you break the terms of the contract or I break the terms of the contract, it's off. The penalty is brought about, the, the judge is, is sought, and that's the end of it. A, a covenant, however, is an unlimited commitment that brings people into a relationship. In, in a covenant, we don't so much put our, uh, our demands and terms on the table or, or our resources on the table, we put ourselves on the table. And we commit ourselves, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, whatever may come, the covenant remains. Everything else in our lives then begins to arrange itself around that central commitment. All your time, all your treasure, all your talents, all yourself. And incidentally, that is why nobody knows what they're getting into when they get married. You never know. You're committing to whatever it is we will be together. Both the relationship and life itself are changed by covenant making. And yet we joyfully throw ourselves into it in marriage. And typically the way that you enter into a covenant is not just by signing some paperwork, but through a ceremony where certain vows are exchanged and symbolic actions are performed and signs of the covenant are given and received. Now marriage is one of the few covenants that we as modern people still recognize. But our reading this morning shows us that the Lord is a covenant-making God. He enters into commitments with his people. And I hope to show you this morning what uh, that tremendously, sorry, what good news that is, what tremendously good news it is that God is a covenant-making God. And the first thing that I want you to see from these verses is that God's covenant is an answer to doubt. He gives his covenant as an answer to doubt. Verse 1 says this, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your, very, I'm your shield and your very great reward. After this, well, if you weren't here last week, you might not know after what, but after this is looking back at the events of chapter 14, the battle that's taken place between the kings of the east and, and Abram, where God had delivered Abram, given him victory, allowed him to rescue his nephew Lot and all his possessions. And sometime after that great display, probably a number of years, uh, after that providential care that Abraham experienced for himself, God comes to him and speaks these reassuring words. 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now that is unique of Abram in the Pentateuch. Nobody else in the first five books of the Bible is, are they said to have received the word of the Lord and certainly not received a vision. The, the word for vision, that's even more rare. Only a few of the prophets later on received those. And, and only the great prophets of Israel's history, many hundreds and, and uh, many years later, received the word of the Lord. It's a direct possibly audible revelation from God. So whatever the actual experience that Abraham had at that moment was, uh, both of these phrases indicate that Abram knows for certain that he's receiving a direct revelation from God. And in this very rare, very direct revelation that Abram receives, God reassures him that he has nothing to fear, for he's promised divine protection and great reward. You know, it's hard to imagine a more gracious promise than that, isn't it? And yet, how does Abram respond? With doubt. Verse 2, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can, uh, what can you give me since I'm childless? Now that you mention reward, Lord... Remember that promise you made about a child? What's, what's happening with that? And God, in his patience, he gives Abram an even more reassuring word. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can count them. So shall your offspring be, Abram. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know that I will gain possession of it? How can I know? How can I be certain? And I think this shows us that doubt is an inevitable part of the life of faith. This is a man who had a deep faith. He left everything that he knew behind in order to follow God's call. Family, culture, wealth, everything. He had an experience of God's great deliverance in battle. And God's great provision for his life as his livestock multiplied. He'd been following the Lord for many years at this point, even having a direct revelation from God, and yet he doubts. So how do you think you're going to fare? All of us will sometimes feel the weight of our doubts. All of us will sometimes wonder, has God really called me? Me? Has he really made gracious promises to me? How can I know? And when we do have doubts, we need to know that God responds to our doubts. He doesn't get outraged and say, how dare you doubt me, you worm? You know, some of us will 
have spent time in conservative religious environments where that was the response that we would have received had we been so bold as to speak about our doubts. And so we learned to keep our doubts to ourselves. But even if that's how self-righteous or religious people respond, that's not how God himself responds. Nor does God say, well, yeah, that's just the way it is, Abram. You'll always have your doubts. You better get used to it. You know, some of us will have spent time in more liberal environments where that was the attitude, where doubts and where disbelief were held up almost as evidence that you are a good, a reasonable person. Because at least you're not like those fundamentalists. At least you doubt what you believe. But that's not how God responds either. God doesn't condemn our doubts, but he does challenge them. God doesn't encourage doubt, but he welcomes the doubter. When we voice our honest doubts to God, God is willing and able to help us through our doubts. He draws us near. He reassures us to trust him and to trust his word. And so doubters like us might finally find a little bit of security and rest in the promises of God. That is why God makes a covenant. That's what we see in verse 9. So the Lord said to him, it was so, it was because of the doubt. A covenant is God's answer to doubt. And so we come to the covenant. And the major point you need to see here is that God's covenant is unilateral. It's one way. Now we've already said that marriage is one of the few covenants that we're still familiar with. But for ancient Near Eastern people like Abram, covenants were much more common. In fact, they were so well understood that when God told Abram to gather some animals together, he doesn't even have to explain why. Abram just gets to work. Did you see that? He automatically understood. The Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. So Abram obviously understood. And the people of his day would have understood. But we don't understand. What's going on? Well, in the ancient Near East, when one nation conquered another nation, they would enter into something called a Susrein vassal treaty. The Susrein, that is the conquering, the, the dominant nation, would draw up a covenant with the vassal, that is the conquered, the, the submissive nation. And that would govern their new relationship. And typically the Seuss reign would provide military protection and the vassal would promise uh, allegiance and military aid if necessary, tribute, taxes, that sort of thing. And one of the features of the Seuss reign vassal treaty was 
that the covenant would be sealed by the symbolic acting out of the consequences that would be um, given if the covenant, if the terms of the, of the agreement were broken. Several inscriptions that we found from the ancient Near East talk about this sort of practice. So by cutting the animals in two, it's a way of saying, may I be crushed, may I be killed, may I be torn apart like these animals if I don't keep this covenant. It was a vivid illustration of the consequences of breaking the agreement. I mean, if you break a contract, what, do you have to go before a judge? You break a covenant, well, the animals are torn in two. So what about you? Now, this was so central to the Hebrew idea of what a covenant is, so essential to it that the word that they use for making a covenant, karat berit, that means to cut a covenant. And the customary practice would have been for then the, the susrein and the vassal to walk through the cut pieces to remind them of their treaty and to show um, that they were both bound. Well, that was if the, the conquering king was feeling generous. He would go through as well. If, if he wasn't feeling generous, it would just be the conquered king who would have to go through. And, and that would be a reminder, actually, you'll be killed if you don't keep this. I'm, I'm not so sure, but you will, certainly, so you better keep it. But here is where the remarkable feature of God's covenant with Abram comes very clear. Because right at the climax, right at the, the ceiling of the covenant ceremony, Abram is suddenly incapacitated by fear. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now deep sleep, it doesn't just mean that he was tired and he fell asleep while talking to God. After all, we, we hear the reports of what God went on to say and to do after that point. It, it's sort of, some of the, the lexicons seem to suggest it's a, a sort of drugged, a, a lethargy, a, a being pinned to the ground sort of feeling. And dreadful darkness, that's not just describing the normal dusk time. These are all indications, all ways of pointing out that there is divine activity going on here. God is at work. Abram is struck by a deep dread at what's happening. Unable to move, unable to respond. And after God lays out the terms of the agreement, which is a reiteration of the earlier promises that he made in chapter 12, that he will bless Abram's offspring, the covenant is sealed. Verse 17, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now do you see what's happening here? The smoke and the fire, those are symbols of God's presence throughout 
the Old Testament. God's presence at Mount Sinai as Moses received the Ten Commandments was smoke and fire on the top of the mountain. That's what the Israelites saw. And as the Israelites walked through the desert in their their desert wanderings, they were led by a, a pillar of fire in the night and by a pillar of smoke, a cloud in the day. So the smoke and the fire, they show that God himself is present here. And as Abram lies on the ground, he's unable to move. God's symbolic presence passes through the pieces. So what does that mean? It means this, that God is taking the curse for covenant breaking on himself. It's astonishing, really. He says, uh, Abram, I promise to bless you. I promise to bless your descendants or else. Or else I'll bear the penalty. Or else I, the immortal one, will taste mortality. Or else I, the creator of life, will go to my death. And the fact that he alone walks through the pieces means that he's taking responsibility for both sides of the covenant. So why is that important? Well, those of us who have heard and responded to God's call with faith, Christians, we aren't surprised that God would keep his side of the agreement, are we? I mean, he's God after all. If anybody's going to keep their promise or be able to keep their promise, it's him. So when he says he'll do something, we believe he'll do something. But we are much less confident in ourselves, aren't we? As we're thinking about committing to the Christian faith, we're trying to live on carrying out the Christian faith. We know that we're prone to fail. Can I really live the Christian life? Am I really able to love my enemies? Am I really able to pray for those who persecute me? Can I really forsake all those sins that entangle me? Can I persevere in the faith? There's so many hardships. There are so many discouragements that life's going to throw at me. Can I really do it? Surely I'm going to fail. But God's covenant is made. He walked through the pieces so that Abram didn't have to. And what that means is that if he fails, he will pay the penalty And if you fail, he will pay the penalty. Either way, he pays the price. It's a unilateral covenant. Now, Abram, he couldn't have known what it would take for God to keep that promise. But centuries after Abram, a a great and dreadful darkness came over Jerusalem at noonday as Jesus hung on the cross. That was a sign that God was at work in that moment. 
and he died. As Isaiah 53 tells us, Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was cut off. He was karat. That's covenant language, do you see? That's the curse. And that's why Paul, as he's meditating on Abram's story in Galatians 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The immortal one became mortal. The creator went to his death. He was crushed. He was torn apart. And he did that so he could keep his promise to bless you and me. And so how does that apply to us this morning? Well, some of you have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ because you've got all these doubts. You think you need to sort out your problems and you need to answer all your doubts before you can really commit to becoming a Christian. But don't you see how that is a contradiction of the Christian faith? Every other faith, even a a faith of your own devising, tells you to walk through the pieces. So you better figure out how to be your own shield, how to be your own reward. You better figure out how to live a moral life and and how to fulfill your duties and, and how to do good works and how to be an advocate for justice and then you'll be defended and then you'll be rewarded. But deep down, you know you're going to fail. You will. I mean, you can't even meet your own standards, much less the standards of a holy God. You're going to fail. And God says to you, I'll be your shield or you won't have a shield. I'll be your reward or you won't have a reward. And Jesus says, if you come to him, then when you fail in life, he'll be torn apart so that you don't have to be. You know, we we have communion every second and fourth week here. And as we do, we repeat Jesus' words. He says, uh, as we hold up the bread and say, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat. Eat. We hold up the wine and we say, this is the blood of the new covenant which was poured out for you, for the sins of you and for many. Drink. Jesus tells you to come to him and receive a blessing, whatever your doubts might be. Let him be your shield, him be your reward. And some of us are Christians, though. And this is the last thing. You know, we've committed ourselves to Christ and we trust him and 
yet we worry. Why? Because we aren't really sure that God's going to come through for us. We're bitter. And we can't forgive people who've wronged us. Why? Because we can't really understand how much Christ has forgiven us. Sure, you know these things intellectually. You, you've heard about them for as long as you've been a Christian. But has it sunk down to a heart level for you? Don't you see that Christ was cut off for you so that you could be grafted in? Don't you see that he was torn apart for you so that you could be raised up? You know, if Abram only ever saw the, the symbolic taking of the curse by God, and he was able to believe and be counted righteous for that, how much more those of us who have seen the actual taking of the curse for us in Christ on the cross? How much more should we believe and be made righteous? God is covenantly bound to you. He is committed to you. Allow that to sink in and to, to go deep. Make that the central commitment of your life and see if everything else doesn't take its place around that. See how it changes the way you live, the way you relate to other people. See if it doesn't just remove the bitter poison from your heart. It doesn't allow you to be gracious with those who have not been gracious to you. The curse of the covenant is borne by God himself. So rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that although we doubt, although we fail, and we know that we can't even trust ourselves, that you've shown yourself to be trustworthy, and you've shown yourself to be committed, and you've said, if we fail, you take the penalty. Lord, please would that sink in. Please would those who don't know you as their shield and their reward, would they find that this morning? Please would those of us who've been walking with you for some time and, and yet not been organizing our lives according to this truth, please would you help it to sink down deep into our hearts to be the rock on which everything else in our lives is built. We thank you that Jesus Christ was torn apart for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.